today as a father, I'll actually introduce my son. I didn't do that last week, you know. This is Joshua Menser. <laughs> You can turn in your Bibles to Samuel chapter 24. So first Samuel chapter 24. This week uh, we ended abruptly as Saul and David were coming out of the cave together. David had just spared Saul's life. Uh, Saul didn't even know it at this point. And David comes out of the cave while Saul is walking towards his 3,000 chosen men, the best of the best, while David's kind of ragtag band of 600 disgruntled men are still probably hiding in the cave wondering why David just walked out after Saul uh, in the midst of the chaos. We heard also last week that David had succeeded in almost every way by the grace of God and by the Holy Spirit that came into David. He had succeeded as a shepherd. He had succeeded as an instrumentalist. He had succeeded as an armor bearer. He had succeeded as a husband and as a son-in-law. And in almost every way, David has succeeded thus far. He will not for the rest of his life. But thus far, he is doing exceptional We heard about his fully capable soldier life. So this is a very capable man who could handle a bear. He could handle a lion. He could handle Goliath. He could handle the Philistines. He could handle large groups of men, small groups of men. It didn't matter. David was more than capable killer, soldier. Um, We don't know almost any of these types of people nowadays. Um, To find somebody in our midst who's killed one person, let alone hundreds or thousands. Uh, David has killed his ten thousands, they said about David. It's a unique thing to us, and it's very hard for us to even begin to wrap our minds around that being okay in the first place, let alone sitting next to somebody like that at dinner, seeing them on the street, honoring them as king, we're very removed from that kind of situation. But do your best to understand that when David offers grace to Saul, it is a tremendous thing. I think we read that passage and say it's kind of a light thing that he snuck up on the man who's been hunting him now for possibly years, who's been forcing him to run from town to town, who's been tracking him down bit by bit, making it so he has to sleep on the ground when rightfully the throne is his. He is next in line. He's lost his wife now. This is where he's at. It's really hard, again, to take it all in and understand the grace of David and letting Saul go. Saul does not even understand it. And you'll see it later when Saul responds to David. That even in Saul's mind, he says, enemies are supposed to be killed by the people they're enemies against when they have opportunity. So it just kind of works in Saul's mind a little bit. It's very interesting. 
This is the exchange, as I left you kind of at a cliffhanger. David comes out now, he sees Saul, and this is what happens. Verse 8. Afterward, David also arose, and he went out of the cave, and he called after Saul, and he said, My lord, the king. When Saul looked at David, he bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. We're going to pause here for a second. Up until this point, David could have been lying about everything he's saying right now. For all Saul knew, David was hiding in the farthest reaches of the cave. He was terrified that Saul was in the cave. He was terrified about the 3,000 soldiers sitting outside who had been tracking him down to this point. For all Saul knows, David made no attempt on his life to save his life. And this is where they're at. Saul's still waiting for some sort of proof or some sort of evidence. And in verse 11, he says this. He says, see, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or no treason in my hands. I want to bring this up only to say that God does not just use your good ideas for his glory, but he also uses your bad ideas for his glory. We oftentimes think, I think when we sin, like I've wasted my life. Like, I I had never had a touch of alcohol until now. I've never been drunk until now. I've never slept with anyone until now. I've never, you name the list of sins that you've never done. Now you think, ruined. Like, I completely ruined my track record. But what God does with your righteousness and with your sin is works them out for his glory and for your good. Remember when David cut off the robe in the first few verses, was he happy about that? No, his conscience overwhelmed him. He even said, I shouldn't have done this. And then he goes back to the men and tells them, I should not have done that. I shouldn't have laid a hand on the Lord's anointed. Right? But God uses that, that robe right there in a profound way. Even the sin of David, even the wrong decision, even if it wasn't a sin, your conscience can still kind of overwhelm you. And God uses that, and he does that for us as well, just like he did for David, where even if you should sin, God does not waste a drop of your life, whether good or bad. This is what's amazing about God. So notice this. Now here's the evidence for Saul. Here's the corner of your robe. I was right there. There's no other way to get this. It was good when you went in. And now it's cut off as you go out. He says, I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As I was studying this, it was just to me so profound how petty we are in our relationships a lot of times. 
me, my kids, whoever, right? I'm angry at the president. I'm angry at the secretary. I'm angry at whoever it is, my wife, my husband, my kids, whoever. I'm angry at them. I have no well intentions for them, no good intentions for them, right? And in a second, the rage can flare up. And you see some of the trucks out there nowadays in this presidential cycle. I can't even let my kids open their eyes half the time because somebody's got an expletive to talk about the president of the United States right now, right? It's just crazy, the amount of animosity and hatred. But none of these people are being tracked down by Biden, tracked from city to city, hunted down. Biden didn't round up 3,000 of his best men to find you trapped in a corner somewhere to take off your head. Um, This is not happening to you. But we react like it is. But I want you to understand that David was being attacked. And his whole family was being taken from him. His wife is still back at home. He hasn't seen her in who knows how long. And in fact, his wife will be given away to another man later on. This is how David's being treated. But look how he is treating Saul. But he does this for a number of reasons. One is because he's God's anointed. He's been told, don't touch this man. It's not like David has never killed anybody. It's not like David has never hunted down Philistines or other enemies or Goliath in particular, right? But this is what he trusts. He hearkens back to the passage in Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verses 35 to 43. And this talks about the Lord. Some of it is very familiar. Some of it is even more graphic than probably you remember. It says this, Vengeance is mine, this is God talking, and recompense, it's mine. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is a hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that the power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free, then he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. And you say to yourself, wow, this is... This is God right here. I gave this illustration in Sunday school this morning uh, to the kids. I said, imagine you're walking down an alley and there's a man coming towards you and he fits this description. His sword is covered in blood. His arrows are ready for war. He's a man of war, ready for vengeance. 
a soldier of soldiers, and he's coming at you down the alley. You're terrified. Like, I'm just going to go the other direction. Or you don't even think you have time, and you crouch down. His arrow's going to hit me in the back. Whatever it is, I'm just going to fall on my face. And then you hear him talk and say, hey, it's your dad. How you doing? You couldn't see him because it was dark. Right? All of a sudden, your emotions change. He goes from the scary guy in the alley to the protector of you in the alley. He goes from once who was, one who was once terrifying to you to now someone who is the most comforting. Right? The only one who could protect you in this alley. The one that you want to protect you in this alley. Whatever it is, right? Because it goes from when God is your enemy, he is terrifying. But when he is your father, he is the most comforting, even if he's in his armor. Does that make sense? Do you see the distinction? And the distinction is important because when people look at God, they think he's terrifying. In the Old Testament, terrifying. New Testament, Jesus, I like that guy. Old Testament, kind of scary, right? But it depends on whose side he is on. And when he is on the side of his children, that is a beautiful outfit for him to wear. That's the thing that you say, that is my dad. If God is for me, then who can be against me? No one. And David understood this. He was trained well. He was an Israelite of the Israelites. He understood the scripture and he understood this passage. The vengeance is God's. He will repay. Nobody gets away with anything. A lot of us hold on to our animosity and our hatred and our unforgiveness because we think I will get them back. Like somehow I'm going to do it. Whether it's name calling, punching, taking, stealing, bad mouthing behind someone's back, whatever it is, I'm going to get that back. Because obviously God isn't up to the task. Now, we don't say that second part, right? But that's what produces the first part. If I let this go, they will get away with it. Nobody gets away with anything. Either you will pay for your sins or Christ has paid for your sins. And you can rest in that. You can both rest in the justice of God, but you can also hand out the mercy of God constantly If you have received it, it's yours to hand out, to distribute forgiveness, mercy, grace, a kind word, even to the worst person like Saul. The one who fears the Lord has no need for revenge. The one whose father is the Lord has no need for revenge. We can rest in his perfect justice. We can rest in his perfect mercy. We can rest in his perfect judgment. How many times have you been angry or assumed somebody did something to you for some reason and come to find out it was none of those reasons? We're like the worst judge of character or the worst judge of motive. Like, nah, I saw it in your eyes. You took the cornflakes this morning because you knew I wanted cornflakes this morning. And you were mad because last night I had the remote control. And you knew this morning if you ate the cornflakes that then and you're like... I didn't know you wanted the cornflakes. In fact, I don't even know what your favorite cereal is. But the whole point is that, right, on the most simplest of matters, we make the worst judgment calls all the time. And so who better to judge than God? 
I was discussing too with the Sunday school class. If if somebody like steps on your toe as they walk by, one of your siblings, how do you want to respond in kind? Do you want to step on their toe? And they're like, no. I want to break their toe. <laughs> right? There's something in us that doesn't even give, we don't give an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If you take my tooth, I'll take your whole face. Right? That's the mindset that we have. God is a far better judge. What do you need? He knows exactly down to the minute detail what this person deserves, what they've stolen, what their intention was, what their heart feelings were, all these things. Who are you to think you can do better? Forgive them and let them go. God is more than capable to take care of them. There are caveats, a million of them. If someone's coming after your family, go for it. Stop it, right? That's your job. When someone's coming through the front door, it's not, well, vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. I'm going to go back to sleep while you take care of my family. No. I will work hand in hand with the Lord right now to do my best to stop whoever's coming to my house. That's my job as a father, right? For all of us. That makes sense. But these things that we cannot judge between, these small offenses that we just seem to rage against, I got to get that last word, that last argument, that last Facebook comment, I'm going to get it in there. God will take care of those things, right? God is more than capable. He continues in verse 13. As the Proverbs of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? I love how David just kind of like, uh, not deconstructs himself, I forget what the word is, but he kind of just takes a look at himself as nothing. He humbles himself and he says this, who did you come out after, Saul? After a dead dog? Like, that's me. I'm like a dead dog. Why are you wasting your time? After a flea, someone so small, someone so insignificant. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. What a great way to have an argument with somebody. Just humble yourself. Say, why are we even arguing? I'm not the wisest man. I'm not right all the time. This, as I step back for a second, seems like it's not as important as I thought it once was. I don't even know why you're wasting your time arguing with me. I'm not worth being argued with, right? Can we step back in some of those arguments and just say, I'm not worth the fight. I'm not worth the trouble. Um, Mellow some of that out a little bit. When I think about the wisdom David has here, I think about the Proverbs, right? You have the wisdom of David in the Proverbs. You have the wisdom of Solomon in the Proverbs. In case you didn't know, that's father-son relationship right there. And this is what he said. This is what David has learned in his life. He's learned this. Proverbs 15.1 says this, and notice how he used it. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now apply that. How have your words been with your husband, wife, spouse, on the internet, as you're posting all your memes and all your things? Are they gentle answers? Or are they harsh words? Because a harsh word will stir up anger. A gentle turns away wrath. 
Proverbs 15, 18 says, A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient, he calms quarrels. Don't jump too quick to conclusions. Be patient. Calm quarrels. Proverbs 16, 24. Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul. They're healing to the bones. What are gracious words? Right? Gracious words are giving something to somebody that they don't deserve. Right? At the time, it might call for something harsh, but instead you're being gracious. Right? What you deserve is a harsh rebuke. What I'm going to give you is something that you don't deserve, which is gracious comments. I saw what you did today. I'm going to withhold my judgment. I want to see how this plays out. I've seen you do better before. These are all gracious words, right? Gracious words of Jesus Christ even. I know that God wants to forgive you for what you did today. I have already forgiven you for what you did today. Christ, if he is your father, has forgiven you for what you did today. I want to impart that grace of God to you and tell you that he has been merciful to you. And even now he knew the sin that you were going to bring. These are the gracious words that you're giving to somebody, reminding them of the grace of Jesus Christ, not coming in harsh, not coming in hot-tempered, but being gracious. And this is exactly what David does with Paul. Now, it doesn't always work out this way in our real-life relationships, but this is a real-life relationship, and David has used all these things, all this wisdom, and he's brought it to Saul. And here's what he says. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said this, Is this your voice, my son David? If you go back through the scripture here, almost every time that Saul refers to David, it's always the son of Jesse. Is this the son of Jesse? The son of Jesse went here, son of Jesse did that. It's never my son David, even though this is his father-in-law. But Saul's been broken here, and he says, Is this my son David. It's funny too, I had not planned to like intersect this with Father's Day, but there's so many references to father and son in here. It's amazing uh, and it's beautiful. Saul, he lifted up his voice and he wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas as I have repaid you evil. You have declared this day how you dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. Now notice, this is what I was referencing before. Here's what Saul's perspective is on this, verse 19. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? I've never seen this, Saul saying, like, it's crazy what you just did. You're far more righteous than I. See, your goodness oftentimes crushes the conscience, right? What does scripture talk about? That your good deeds for somebody who doesn't deserve it is like heaping hot coals on their head or on their lap. It's like, uh, for some reason, when somebody does something good for you, when you do not deserve it, it's almost more painful than if they would just yell at you for it. Because you know, I don't deserve it. Saul did not deserve to be saved. Saul knows he didn't deserve to be saved. And he declares this to David. You've dealt well with me. You did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. If a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, 
I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hands. This is the first time that Saul has acknowledged that the kingdom is David's. After David brought his kind, gracious, humble words to Saul, he acknowledges David's rightful place on the throne. And it's not like Saul didn't know it. Jonathan had told him forever ago, David is your successor. Samuel has told him, uh, but Saul's still raging after David, thinking he can defeat God. So he says in verse 21, knowing full well now that David is the right choice. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home. But David and his men, they went up to the stronghold. That's a funny little ending to this when you think about it. Did David ever try and return to Saul's kingdom? In the very beginning of their relationship, he did. He got a spear thrown at him so as to pin him against the wall. David forgave Saul after Jonathan talked to Saul and came back and started playing harp again until Saul went after him again. So this time, when Saul goes back to the kingdom, what does David do? He goes back to his stronghold. He's learned his lesson. Saul has offered his repentance as much as he can, but ultimately David knows I'm next in line and this is not going to go well for me in the future. So just so you're aware, David does keep his promise to Saul. If you read ahead, uh, it's a grandson who ends up living, but David did not have his hands on killing any of Saul's family. Uh, Three of Saul's children die in a battle, the same battle that Saul dies in. Saul's being chased by the Philistines, being attacked. His sons die. Saul's hit with a number of arrows. He's Injured so bad that he asks his armor bearer, his new armor bearer, now after David, to end his life. And the armor bearer says, I'm not going to do it. And so Saul ends his own life, actually. um, Because David keeps his promises, and he is gracious. Not only that, it's crazy the lengths of mercy and forgiveness and grace and compassion David has on Saul. Not only that. But after Saul dies, a man comes back. He's one of the only left after the Philistines had wiped out that entire part of Israel right there. And David says, give me a report on what happened. He says, well, the three sons of Saul have died and so has Saul. And here's his crown and here's his armband to prove it. And he says, well, how do you know this? And uh, he says, well, Saul was dying. I knew he wasn't going to come back from this. And he asked me to kill him. And so I killed him, and I brought these things to show you. And David says to him, how could you lay a hand on the Lord's anointed? And he tells a young man to kill him. So this young man comes and kills the man who claimed to kill Saul, and he didn't even kill Saul. (laughs) But not only that, then David tears his clothes with all the rest of the men in his company when he finds out Saul's dead. Not only that, he weeps about the situation. Not only that, he writes an entire song for Saul and for Jonathan. 
Not only that, he puts that in a book and tells everybody else they're going to sing it. This is how much compassion he has. Not only that, Saul's body and the body of his sons are taken and mounted on a wall. And they, these guys send a military excursion in, take the bodies down and bury them in a good place. David finds those people, gives them all sorts of lands, all sorts of rewards for the good that they had done to Saul, even after he was dead, just with his body. This is how much grace, mercy, forgiveness, just overwhelming amount of forgiveness from David. There's a ton of sermons preached like, be like David, be like David and kill Goliath, be like David and do this. And this is not one of those sermons. I want you to go away today understanding it's not be like David, but David was given grace by God to be overwhelmingly faithful. The Spirit of God came on to David in the very beginning of his uh, anointing or kingship and gave him the ability to be abundantly gracious to Saul. And so all glory to God for working that out in David's life. All glory to God for giving David a wonderful father, most likely. Glory to God for giving David the scriptures, the Deuteronomy, right? The Proverbs that he had learned in his youth for giving him the wisdom and the generosity and the insight and all these things. Praise God for that. But even David, if he had the opportunity to bow before Christ, would say, you are the most forgiving, the most gracious, the most merciful. In fact, he would be disgusted in himself if he saw Christ. And then overwhelmed by the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus Christ, and love for David. It's the same with you, and it's the same with me. We are to be like Christ, because that is, what other standard would God give you? But we are to rest in Christ, because he has done what you cannot do. That whole list of, but I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, those are all things that you should do. But all those things have been done in Christ. So one day you're going to not bless your enemy. Christ is interceding for you right now because of that. One day you are not going to give to somebody who asks. Christ is given to those who didn't ask and who weren't even seeking him. God is well aware of your faults and your downfalls. And God is more than merciful and gracious to his children. Just like your father's more than gracious and merciful to you, hopefully. And should you not have a father who is that way, you can have one in Christ. You can have one in God the Father. Because he's either your terrifying soldier coming down the alley, or he is your greatest savior coming down the alley. And there is nobody who can stand against your God. We all deserve justice like Saul deserves. But we have the opportunity to receive the forgiveness that Christ offers us. And you get a little image of that in David. You also get an image when we read that passage in Deuteronomy about the wrath of God, the vengeance of God. What was it that was poured out on Jesus Christ? 
You see, a lot of times we read in the Old Testament and we say, well, that God looks scary, that God looks harsh, that God looks mean. But that God poured out what you deserve on Jesus Christ, the only truly innocent, not sinful, completely forgiving Son of God, Jesus Christ, to save us who are not innocent, 100% culpable for our crimes, 100% deserving of the wrath that was talked about in Deuteronomy. That is us. That is what we deserve. But God, who is rich in mercy, loves to save the worst kind of people. Loves to. And he loves them. Enough to send his own son to die for us. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your work in the heart of David. We thank you for uh, your work throughout all of history in the life of Saul, in the life of David, in the life of men and women all throughout Scripture who have both followed you and failed you. God, you show mercy to both the just and to the unjust. You've made the sky to rain on both. You've fed those who steal food, and you've fed those who have had food stolen from them. You are the perfect judge of the world, perfect judge of our hearts, and even though we deserved the full weight of the gavel coming down and saying guilty, you offered us forgiveness in Jesus Christ who bore the wrath of God in our place. God, I pray that we would understand your love and compassion for us. I pray that we would understand you as a father who is both gentle and meek and lowly, but also a soldier, able to protect. God, I pray that we would tell others as well, they don't have to be angry and unforgiving, that there is a God who will both hand out vengeance but also loves to hand out forgiveness and mercy to the thousandth generation. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your work in my heart and the heart of this church. I thank you for Don and his faithfulness to this church and his continued faithfulness to this church and Terry as well. And as they travel, bless them. Thank you for this time together. In Christ's name, amen. Turn your hymn books to 613. Let's stand and sing Trusting Jesus together. Stand and sing. Simply trusting every day, trusting through a stormy way, even when my faith is small, trusting Jesus, that is all, trusting as the moments fly, trusting as the days go by, trusting Him, whatever befall. Jesus, that is all. Brightly doth his spirit shine into this poor heart of mine.
While he leads, I cannot fall. Trusting Jesus, that is all. Trusting as the moments fly. Trusting as the days go by. Trusting Him, whatever befall. Trusting Jesus, that is all. Singing with my way is clear. Praying if the path be drear. If in danger for Him call. Trusting Jesus, that is all. Trusting as the moments fly. Trusting as the days go by. Trusting Him, whatever befall. Trusting Jesus, that is all. Trusting Him while life shall last. Trusting Him till earth be past. Till within the jasper wall. Trusting Jesus, that is all. Trusting as the moments fly. Trusting as the days go by, trusting Him, whatever befall, trusting Jesus, that is all. Remember those principles on Father's Day, we can utilize them even for our own fathers and for our own children. It's an example to emulate but to know that God will is way ahead of us in having already taken care of it all. We must be able to come and take care of it individually with those that we love on a moment-by-moment basis. Gracious Father, you are amazing in your love for us. For your grace through your Son, Jesus Christ, we deserved nothing We deserve to be judged and sent to hell. But your love and your graciousness intervened and paid a cost that we could not afford. We thank you, Father, for being willing to send your Son. We praise you for a Son who would pay the ultimate price and carry our sin. Thank you then for having victory and rising from the grave. Father, help us as we leave to go relieved and excited that you love us and you hold nothing against us. I cannot understand your love for me, but let us leave rejoicing that you have such love for us. We'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen.